Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. The Lord is the one that we look to for help. And that is what we read as we come to God's Word this morning as well. I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. And if you're just joining us in Judges, what we've seen so far is a, a tale of declining obedience to the first generation of Israelites as they partially obeyed the Lord, but increasingly failed to drive out the nations as God commanded. And then last week we saw a second generation of Israel who abandoned the Lord who had graciously saved them and worshipped the gods of the Canaanites instead. This morning we want to pick up the narrative where we left off in Judges chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, follow along as we read Judges chapter 2, verse 11 through verse 6 of chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies." And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. But the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of the, those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Libo-Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he'd commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, 
the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Let's pray. God, this is a sobering word from you, and yet it also shows us your character and your goodness. So would you work in our hearts to show us our sin, but also show us you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in seminary, my summer jobs was coaching sports camps for kids. And when I was hired, they gave me a training manual, and I attended a training event. And this training manual would tell me what a week-long sports camp was supposed to be like. Of course, once the kids showed up, all bets were off. The training manual didn't tell you how to coach the girl who showed up in the princess skirt and said, well, I actually hate sports. But her parents thought a sports camp might be different. They didn't tell you what to do with the boy who showed up and and wet his pants throughout the morning. As college students and post-college students, we had no idea what to do with that. The manual didn't tell you what to do with the young man who thought that he was the combination of Tom Brady and LeBron James in one person. And anyone who didn't recognize that would experience his wrath. So every individual camp had its challenges. But what the training manual did do was tell you the general pattern of what a a camp should look like and what to expect. And in many ways, what we have here in Judges 2 and 3 is like that training manual. It gives us an overview and tells us the pattern of what's to come in each of the individual stories of the Judges. We have a pattern we're going to see again and again in the coming chapters of Israel's sin, God's judgment, God's rescue through a judge, followed by Israel's sin again. And as this passage summarizes this pattern, what we particularly see here is that in the face of Israel's sin, God's character is on clear display. We'll look at God's character specifically in a minute, but let's begin by looking at the nature of sin and what we learn from Israel's example. The first thing I think that stands out in this story is the downward spiral of sin. We already saw in Judges 1 this declining obedience. Then we saw that the first generation's partial obedience was followed by a second generation that abandoned the Lord and did what was evil in His sight. But the decline doesn't end there. After describing Israel's distress and God's mercy to raise up judges, when we look to verses 18 and 19, the summary describes the third and fourth generations who repeat this pattern. But verse 19 concludes that after the death of the judges God sent, Israel turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. In other words, the corruption of God's people continues to grow generation after generation. And by the time we get to chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, all Israel is described as living among the Canaanites, marrying their sons and daughters, and worshiping their gods. So that Israel is described here as fully integrated into Canaanite life. And so while we think of Judges, if you know the story of Judges, we often think of it as going through cycles But Judges is not describing parallel cycles. It's describing a decline into greater and greater sin, story by story. And we'll see how this plays out in the chapters to come. But I think it's a reminder right up front, both individually and corporately, 
that when we abandon God's Word, sin becomes more prevalent and more pervasive as the restraining power of God's truth is set aside. So this downward decline of sin is evident here. But this passage also highlights for us the attractive yet enslaving power of sin. Notice the language that's used to describe Israel in these verses. In verse 12, Israel's described as going after other gods. Now, to go after something is to pursue it. We, we go after a promotion at work, or we go after a starting position on our, on our sports team. It describes something that we find desirable or, or meets a need that I have. For Israel, perhaps the Canaanite gods appeared to offer better crops or security against drought. Maybe Israel felt that the gods of the Canaanites gave them more control. There are things I can do to get things from these gods rather than waiting on the sovereign work of, of Yahweh. Or maybe it was just the very physical, tangible, sexual nature of pagan worship that felt so much more alive and real than worshiping the God of their fathers who they could not see. We don't know exactly, but either way, at least initially, sin and idolatry was attractive, and Israel went after them. But down in verse 17, we read that Israel whored after other gods. Now the relationship of Israel to the pagan gods is described as, as prostitution. And on the one hand, this is likely used to depict Israel, who has abandoned the god who was their God who had covenanted with them to go after a multitude of rivals instead. But in addition, I think as is always the case with prostitution, this implies that Israel has given of themselves but are receiving no real love, protection, or anything genuinely for their good in return. I find it interesting, last week one of our supported missionaries was here in the evening and gave a missionary report Her work is working with women who have been trafficked. And she described the story that is true of almost every trafficked woman. How they are offered a great job in nannying or or caring for a house that will enable them to support their families. And they go after that great opportunity. And only when they arrive in another country do they find that they have been tricked and trapped in prostitution. But I think this, this pattern is how sin works too. It seems to offer us something attractive, but when we give ourselves to it, we find that we are trapped and enslaved by sin. I think this is what we see for Israel. What began as a desire to do what felt good for them, to go after the gods of the nations, despite God's warnings and commands, has become a slavery that has used them and has them in its grasp, which is why I think the most frequent language used throughout this passage is that of they served the other gods and bowed down to them. They have now exchanged Yahweh for another master that they are owned by. I think this really brings us to the nature of sin, doesn't it? You know, so often when we think of sin, we think of decisions or actions that are bad. But the bad decisions or actions we make are only the fruit of the power of sin. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, he said, sin is not simply an action that we do or fail to do. Sin is a power that holds you in its grip. This is why Romans chapter 3, when it talks about sin, says that both Jew and Gentile 
religious man and pagan man are under sin or are under the power of sin, as it might be translated. And it's that enslaving power of sin that holds us under its grasp that explains this degeneration of all Israel into a downward spiral of sin and idolatry. And until we see that the problem with our hearts too is not about the mistakes that we make or how many good decisions we have or have not made, but a problem with our hearts that are under the control of sin, which leads us to pursue life for our goals and our ends instead of for the glory of God. We will not yet understand why we don't just need some help being good. We don't just need an insurance policy for the times we aren't. We need a Savior. We need the Son of God to die in order to break the power of sin over us and to pay the penalty that our sin deserves. I need to repent of my sin and put my faith in Him so that His blood will cover me and His Spirit will renew my heart in repentance and faith to trust in and to submit to God through Jesus Christ. That is the nature of sin and that is the need that jumps off the page as we see Israel's hearts here. But it's precisely when we see the depth of our need, this this enslaving power of sin as God's people serve other gods and go after them and bow down to them in a pattern that degenerates generation after generation. It's this sin that highlights now the character of God that's on display as we see him respond to Israel. And there are three things that I think we see about God's character in this passage. First, we see the faithful, loving anger of the Lord. Now maybe those words seem like a contradiction to you, but they're not. Look how Judges describes the Lord's response. In verses 14 and 15 it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunders. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. Do you see how the author puts a double emphasis on the fact that the Lord's anger and punishment are exactly what the Lord promised to do if Israel turned away from him in sin? In fact, for the Lord's anger not to turn against Israel's sin would be to break his word that he had promised to them. See, back in Leviticus 26, verse 17, God had said that if Israel did not obey his commandments, he would set his face against them and they would be struck down before their enemies and those who hate them would rule over them. And if Israel persisted to walk against the Lord, even in the face of these enemies, in verse 28, God said that in fury, he would discipline them for their sins. And so Judges 2.14 is evidence of God's perfect faithfulness to keep his word just as he had promised. But God also made it clear in Leviticus 26 that the purpose of his anger was not to get back at Israel, it was not to be cruel to Israel, it was to discipline them. It was to hedge the way of sin with thorns so that they would turn back to him. In other words, God's faithfulness to keep his word was also a display of his love. It was his desire and his yearning to draw his people back to him. In fact, isn't it the case that sometimes genuine love must respond in anger? 
God repeatedly talked about his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament as a marriage. And the question is, if a husband found out that his wife had committed adultery with another man, and he responded by saying, ah, well, better luck next time, what would that reveal? It would reveal that he had no genuine love for his wife in the first place. Because true love is jealous for the object of his love. And so the kindling of God's anger is not only faithful to his word, it is also a sign of his love, his jealous love for his people. In fact, back in Leviticus 26, after describing the punishment he would bring on Israel for the sin, for their sin, he concluded this way. He said, yet for all that, When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. And this is a declaration of faithful love to claim Israel as his even in the face of their sins. And it is that faithful and genuine love that leads to his just anger in this passage. So first we see God's faithful and loving anger. But then we also see God's compassion and mercy in this story. You know, if you didn't know what was going to happen in this story, if you were reading it for the first time and you read verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. What would you expect to come next? Well, you would not expect what we actually read in verse 16. The Lord raised up judges to save them. And you would not expect what we actually read in verse 18. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. Notice he's not moved by their repentance. There's no hint of repentance here. It's the sheer distress of his people, even though they have not repented, that moves God to compassion. And verses 16 to 19 make it clear that God doesn't just do this once. The chapters ahead are going to show us God saving his people again and again and again. And as Dale Ralph Davis exclaims, he says, here in Judges 2, we find the fundamental miracle of the Bible. That the God who rightly casts us down for our sin should without reason accept the depth of his compassion be the very one to stoop down and lift us up. And isn't this the very character of God we read about 1,200 years later in the words of Ephesians 2? Though we were dead in our sins, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of our body and by nature deserving wrath, though that is the case, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God that no one might boast. What compassion, what mercy, what gracious love we find in the one true God who would act to save his sinful people and judges and will act again to save his sinful people by the cross of Jesus. So we see the faithful, loving anger of God. We see his overabundant mercy and compassion. But then thirdly, we also find in Judges the sovereign goodness 
of the Lord on display. And here I want to draw your attention beginning in verse 20. There the Lord's anger is kindled again because of Israel's disobedience. And in verse 21, he makes this declaration. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. And you remember, that was what God promised, right? He said, if you disobey me, I will not drive these nations out. So again, we see God's faithful judgment here. But then God adds another comment. This is an unexpected comment. He says he makes this determination in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And then down in chapter 3, the text adds that the Lord had specifically left these nations so that Israel would know war. And these nations would now test Israel's obedience. Well, what's going on here? Well, it seems that the Lord, in His sovereignty intentionally did not drive out all the Canaanites right away under Joshua, but wanted the next generations of Israel to have to finish taking Canaan so that they might know war. Now, why would God want the next generations to know war? Well, because it's in war that Israel is forced to depend upon the Lord, and it is in war that Israel saw most clearly God's power and faithfulness on their behalf. I mean, just think back in Israel's history. When has Israel been most faced with their inability and their need to depend upon God? It was trapped between the Red Sea and the army of the Egyptians, wasn't it? It was faced with the walls of Jericho that were so high and so thick they had no hope of taking the city. It was faced with five Canaanite kings and all their forces coming against them. And what did God do? He showed His power and His faithfulness, dividing the Red Sea so His people could walk through, causing the walls of Jericho to fall down flat, and causing the sun to stand still that Israel might defeat their enemies. And so it was that Israel's weakness always brought them face to face with God's power and presence on their behalf. And so it was God's sovereign goodness to them that allowed a situation where Israel would need to depend upon him in the coming generations and would see his power and his faithfulness as they relied on him. But then Israel sinned. And so the Lord says, I am not going to drive the nations out before them. But even here, we find that in the face of their sin, the Lord turns their punishment into a chance to test them for their good. After all, you know the purpose of a test, right? Students, you know why your your teachers test you. It is not to be cruel to you. And I assure you it is not because they like grading the tests. Your teachers test you in order to help you learn, to hold accountable so that you will grow in your knowledge for your good. After all, how well would we study if there was no test as part of the class? And in the same way, God turns Israel's just discipline into an opportunity for their good in which they'll face a situation where they will actively have to choose to reject sin and obey God. These nations now are left among them as an opportunity to test them for their good. And it's with grief that we read down in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3 and discover the results of Israel's exam. Even after God's compassion and goodness, we find them further down the spiral of sin 
as they have fully adopted the people, the culture, and the gods of Canaan. But as we come toward the end, I want to pause for a minute on this theme of testing. We quickly find that God specifically and wisely brings testing into the lives of all of his people for their good. See, testing is part of God's ordained means to discern our hearts and to draw us into dependence upon him and to engage our wills in an act of obedience. You think back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. God ordained a test for Adam and Eve when he allowed Satan to enter the garden and Adam and Eve faced for the first time a situation when they were pushed to decide Will they trust God's word? Will they obey him or not? And we know how that test went. And God brings his own son Jesus when he comes to earth into the desert to face a test as Satan tempts him three times to see will the son of God remain obedient to his father or will he fall to temptation? And we know how the second Adam, the son of God, passed that test. When the first chapter of James talks about testing, whether it's through suffering in our lives or when confronted by temptation, and reminds us that God brings all of us through testing. And James 1.13 makes it clear that God himself never tempts us towards evil. But he also makes it clear that God allows us to face both suffering and temptations as tests, as opportunities to be drawn into dependence upon him. Opportunities where our wills will need to be exercised to obey the Lord. As James 1, 2, and 3 puts it, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And James 1, 12 adds, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So God calls us to testing for our good. Now, Scripture's not calling us here to just cheer up under suffering and difficulty. These Scriptures don't undermine the raw lament of the Psalms that cry out to God in anguish and distress, as our hearts know so often. You know, I know as I look around our sanctuary this morning that There are some of you who have faced and are facing more suffering than you ever dreamt. And at times more than you feel that you can endure. I know that some of you are facing temptation. Some of you are facing conflict and testing in other ways too. And Scripture always invites us to speak honestly to God and to cry out to Him in our worst. But what Scripture also does is remind us and show us that God is able to take all of our circumstances and He can even turn our sins into opportunities in which the Lord can work steadfastness in us, molding us with the precious crown of life through the furnace of testing. And so may we not see testing as a sign of God's disfavor, but of His sovereign goodness to draw us into dependence upon Him to draw us into steadfastness in Him and to obedience to Him for our good and for His glory. As we end this morning, this passage gives us such a striking picture, doesn't it, of our predicament 
and of God's salvation. Israel grows increasingly corrupt, going after other gods, disobeying God's commands, and demonstrating from one verse to the next the enslaving power of sin. But the story of Israel shows us ourselves. For unless the grace of God breaks the power of sin, we too are enslaved to it. We too will inevitably go our own way after false hopes, after false idols, after false offers of fulfillment and desire, piling up sin and foolishness, or just plain old independent self-fulfillment, which is just as surely rebellion against God as we live our way rather than His. And this story shows us, I think, the impossibility of living a good enough life to live up to God's standards. We've seen in chapter 1 partial obedience, even mostly obedience. We saw in chapter 2 abandoning the Lord, and in chapter, the end of chapter 2 into 3 increasing corruption. But whichever category we find ourselves, the result was the same. The judgment of God against sin. And so our only hope is the character of God. The compassion of His heart and His willingness to rescue us. And if we marvel at the character of God and the depth of His compassion here in Judges, sending judges to save Israel, if we think it incredible that the God of kindled anger would raise up judges to save His people, just wait until He sends His own Son to the point of death on the cross to break the power of sin over us and redeem us and reclaim us and reconcile us to Himself and His love. Because the cross is this character of this God on display to the uttermost. And so the questions for us as we end this morning are simply these. Do we understand the depth of our sin and our helplessness under sin's power on our own? And if so, have we looked to Jesus and asked Him in faith to forgive us, to save us, and to make us His? And if we have, are our hearts singing with praise to such a God whose character is on clear display here in Judges and on clear display in the cross of our Savior? May we sing with joy to such a God. Let's pray. And God, as we reflect on Your Word this morning, we grieve over Israel's sin A sin which continues to grow more corrupt until they are living fully integrated into the life of the world around them. And yet, Father, we have no right to cast any stone against Israel because our hearts are the same on our own. On our own, our hearts too are trapped under the enslaving power of sin. We too are tempted and attracted to go after sinful, false hopes and pleasures in this life. Father, how thankful we are for your faithful, loving compassion and mercy to pour out your anger on your own son Jesus instead of us, that if we look to you in faith, we might be redeemed and reclaimed as yours and reconciled to you. Father, may we put our trust in such a Savior this morning and sing with joy for all that you have done for us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.